So the, the idea is to create an educational experience that allows people to, to really ask these fundamental questions and hopefully to do that in line with the rhythms of the, the, the systems within which we exist. So mm-hmm. one of the things I, I asked students, as I was telling you uh, a couple of days ago, uh, in some of my courses, as soon as they start, I say, I ask students, where is north? <laughs> yeah. And most people don't know where north is located relative to their current position. And that, yet yeah, is a fundamental orientation of the self in relation to the rest of the, mm. the cosmos. What is the phase of the moon that we're under? What, where, at what time is the zenith? What kind of plants flourish at this time? Where is the nearest place where fresh water is located? And so on and so forth. Things that are absolutely, ought to be absolutely basic, mm. rather than us being consistently dependent for our own very survival, our own very basic needs in that Maslow hierarchy of needs, on things that we have no control and no understanding over and no understanding of. Yes, when you say it like that, it's like, how do we get ourselves into this? Exactly. <laughs> we need this learning. That, the, it's basic. This is not advanced learning. No, but it's no not... well, that's right. But on top of that, then you've got the advanced, which is the super exciting stuff exactly. we, we hear in this podcast. Exactly. We talk about. And, and that, is, that is the... Wouldn't it be great if in the future we had ecological lawyers, ecological economists, ecological engineers, ecological doctors, that is doctors who understand perfectly the principles of medicine, but also understand how the health of the body is connected to biophilic principles. You sit in front of a tree, I don't say like the body tree like Buddha did for (laughs) seven years, but you sit in front of a tree and your mood changes and your stress level decrease, and your adrenal production changes, and your, your entire immune system changes. And now all of the inflammations that you have and that you have to take pills for, you don't need them any longer. Now, that's medicine, but it's the, the fundamental biophilic principle of sitting in front of the tree is something that many doctors might not consider. Some do, I have to say. Some do, and mm. I'm very aware of it. Well, it's the same in academia. There's some terrific... Yeah. people in there but the yeah. system's oriented the other way and exactly so the system pushes people yeah. i have to tell you when i finished <laughs> finished a tour la- late last year i was in melbourne and i passed uh, yet another extension of the hospital the saint vincent's in this instance and there was a big billboard on this massive construction site saying engineering is the future of medicine <laughs> and I thought, again, no sense of irony. There's a number of these things you come across when yeah. you bring this lens to it. You go, oh my God, it says it all, but yeah. no sense of irony. Yeah, and, uh, and I, see, I think if, if we want to use the, the, the metaphor of the analog and the digital, engineering is digital. It's that mechanical quantification of the universe. It has tremendous mm-hmm. uh, applications. It's fantastic. It has great purpose. But like anything digital, it misses something of the analog. The analog has that continuation of, of the spectrum. It's the entire spectrum. The digital cuts some elements of that spectrum and only takes those, those elements and then recombines them together. So engineering is digital. Medicine is analog. Mm. So life is analog. I was just going to say, exactly. So yeah. we, okay. if we actually re-embrace that and re, re-inject that within the educational system, as it has been the case and still is the case in some parts of the world, I believe this is the best thing that we can do in face of the predicament. It also means that we, we can be comfortable in, in being ourselves, in doing less, in consuming less, in needing less, 
and just being present in wherever we are. And this is not a deficit mentality, this is a, uh, um, a surplus mentality. Like by doing less, you're doing more, you know, right? you're getting yeah. far more. Think about the kids, anyone who has kids and who is listening now, think about the mountain of unnecessary toys that your kids have accumulated if they are between the age of six and 10. I'm sure that half of a room will be full of boxes of toys. And think, I know I've got two nephews in that age group. <laughs> and, uh, and I watch them. They get the toy, they're excited about having that toy. The novelty. And they have to have yes. that toy. Yes. They will play with it two minutes. Sometimes they just look at it and then it will be discarded. To me, this is just idiotic. There are other ways to do it. It's stupid. It's it, literally, and you know, yeah. you li everyone listening knows that it's stupid, but you can't stop it. There's no way you can stop the peer pressure that, and the pressure from the kids for that to happen. Hmm. You don't want to accumulate boxes of things well, for the we kids. We watch our boy, who's eight going nine, the, the incursion into education spaces, right, of corporate, uh, either corporations themselves or just that, again, that way or that idea, whether it's actually happening that way or not, of even just brochures that come home. And it's, it's called a book club, for example. But it's just book selling, yeah. along with a whole bunch of other junk that's falling yeah. right into the camp of what you're talking about. So our process with our boys is just trying to get some critical perspective on that. See, what, see how they do In fact, I sat down with him and I said, how many ways are they trying to make you want things? And mm. he was able to say, oh, they put that in red, they put that in a big flashy box, and the, mm. it was cool. It, mm. We have to do that. The school should be doing mm. that anyway. Let's, that's really good that you're doing that. It's a great way of educating yeah. and, and giving your son the ability to start to, to question whether he needs that particular thing at that yeah. particular time. Now, he's not going to be able to, to, no. to resist the, the pressure of, of his peers. That's right. No one is. But this is why I think the system is the problem, not the individual. So we, and if the system is failing, then we need to create alternative systems. Are they enough to counter the, the momentum of the existing economic system? More likely not, not by themselves. But the system devours itself. And once it has devoured itself, what is left remains. So um, think about the, so some physicists, this, this really interesting, I, I think we were discussing the other day, this really interesting calculation, he said, so um, economists tell us that uh, we have to have an economic growth in order to be sustainable as a country of 3% per annum. Okay. That means a growth of GDP, so goods and services being produced, which means material resources and energy, which can be produced in a number of ways. We should also, just, just, just for quick points of reference, say, which includes cleaning up of oil spills and car crashes. And, yep. So there's no qualitative no, judgment. Anything, <laughs> yes. anything. Keep that in mind. Yep, anything. So let's leave aside the Jensen paradox so that the idea that uh, yes. with the growth of e efficiency, we increase the number of resources being used. So let, let's leave that aside, he said, and let's imagine that we have this amazing mythical and mystical 1%, oh, sorry, 50% efficiency gain technologically per annum. So now the growth is 1.5% per annum. That means that every 60 to 70 years, roughly, because of the, the uh, compound interest, mm. the m amount of resources, materials and energy being used is doubled. Then what he did, he proceeded, this physicist, proceeded to calculate or estimate the amount of resources, minerals and uh, energy uh, producing um, resources on the planet. Within between three and 4,000 years, all the resources of the planet would be used. 
So he said, okay, so then let's say that we are able to go to the moon and we're using the moon for the resources and then it, they get consumed and then we need to go to the outer planets and then we need to go outside to the nearest stars and then to the other stars around and then to the galaxy and then we manage to go outside the galaxy and consume the other galaxies to the point that we've expanded throughout the entire universe. Within 20 to 30,000 years, we've consumed all the resources of the universe. <laughs> so the three Do we win something for that? 3% per annum means that the, the amount of resources that we have in the universe will last between 20 and 30%, 20 30,000 years, according to this physicist. Now, it's but an we'll have had low unemployment. Yeah, we'll, for those 20,000 years, go for it, go to town, man. But after that, not so much. It's absurd. So the, the, the idea or the myth of endless growth is physically impossible. So like locusts, these systems will consume themselves. So if we create alternative systems that are designed to be on a steady state, then it's a completely different story. Now, this is, does not mean a Luddite rejection of technology, far from it. Technology is what allows us to thermoregulate the planet and potentially stave off ice ages. It what allows us to stop an, uh, um, an asteroid or a meteorite from hitting the planet again and having an extinction event similar to that of 65 million years ago. So technology is an absolute fantastic invention that we have had as humanity. However, in and of itself, technology is something that we need to use carefully and consciously. We cannot let it run us. No, it's the old thing, isn't it? A, a good servant, poor master. Mm -hmm. And But you, you highlight the potential, though. If we can do this well and, and maintain access to those fantastic mm -hmm. technologies we've arrived at, not throw the whole bloody lot out in obstinance exactly. or, or risk the whole lot, at exactly. the very least, in obstinance. As we draw to a close, Alessandro, uh, we have to touch off on your point of primary expertise. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the work you've done, aside from doing your main job. Rights of nature and the earth laws and so forth. You, you have a book coming out, so, so heads up for that. That'll be around soon. But I guess just let's at least touch off on a few of the key aspects of what's happening at the moment in our last minutes together. I'd say the most important one is the release of what's known as the Eco-Jurisprudence Monitor by the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. So if people searches for the Eco-Jurisprudence Monitor, that monitor is, uh, which has been partly funded by the Rockefeller Brothers Funds, is a collection of all the legal initiatives around the planet in relation to ecological jurisprudence. Mm. So that means rights of nature, ecocide, ecological civilization, and so on. Now, we had one in 2008, the, the Constitution of Ecuador. There are now 470 across 42 jurisdictions plus the international level. In 15 years, we've gone from one to 470. These are past yeah, speaking initiatives. Speaking of compound. Yep. So we're not, we're not talking about um, uh, just one isolated case, but these are pieces of legislation, constitutional provisions, cases, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really the magnitude of the change is incredible. Mm. So that's probably the most important development that we, we've seen. Within that, we've seen that Europe has introduced legislation uh, toward rights of nature with the Mar Menor in Spain, the salt lagoon in Spain that has been granted personally. We've seen that in, in Ecuador, a recent, relatively recent case in the Los Cedros case, um, recognized that rights of nature, nature has to be seen as 
preeminent against the, the rights of economic development, uh, of, of miner mineral exploitation and mining in a particular area of uh, the Los Cedros in the, the mm. Ecuadorian so that, Amazon. That was in the Constitutional Court? That, that, that was in the Constitutional Court. Yeah. So based on the constitutional provisions, 73 to 74, etc., of the, uh, and the Ecuadorian Constitution, the Constitutional Court saw those rights of nature as uh, trumping the rights of economic yeah, It's a real test case, I'm, I'm getting Huge that. test case. Yeah. And obviously it's a test case for Ecuador, but it's, it's quite symbolic worldwide. Mm. And, and we'll see how that impacts other, other countries. Yeah. But, so we, we see that there's been significant development, but I would suggest everybody who have the time to go and have a look at the Ecojurisprudence Monitor. What we are doing in addition to the, um, to the list of cases uh, or initiatives around the world, we're now in the process of developing what we call the Ecojurisprudence Library, which is a collection of all the secondary sources, peer-reviewed mm. journal articles and books on the topic, so that then people can have a look. Yeah, Not all of them are immediately or, or publicly available, some are behind paywalls, but the titles are, so people can actually have a look at all that is available in, in mm. the field. And we see the, the growth in literature in the field, again, being exponential in growth. Wonderful. And I think about the e eco side part of that too, that's coming along as well, right? Yeah. And ancestral law, that, that topic we so talked about a couple of years ago. Two things. So the eco side has now, so the European Parliament has almost unanimously voted to try and pass that into legislation in the EU. So we can see the eco side again, which is the other side. So if you've got rights, yes. you've got responsibility, eco side speaks of the responsibilities. And uh, it's emerging. But the idea of pushing the idea of legal personhood for nature, so nature as a subject of rights, is increasing in that in addition to being a legal person as a corporation is, the idea of having the, the agency vested upon those who uh, have an ancestral connection to it ha is leading to the, the conversation of an ancestral person, which is continuing here in Australia, and I think yeah. it's quite fascinating. Yes, yes, I hear Anne Paulina talking about it increasingly, actually, including on mainstream media, mm -hmm. to great effect. And... We can't go without talking about the Pope's rescinding of the Doctrine of Discovery. Yep, just a few days ago. This is incredible. So the Doctrine of Discovery, for those who don't know it, is the doctrine upon which the, the discoverer's rights, the exclusive discoverer, discoverer's rights, were granted to European Christian powers or sovereign against all other Christian sovereign as first discoverers of non-Christian lands, which then led them to potentially acquire sovereignty over those lands, either through conquest, session, or if they were in uninhabited uh, occupation. That then got changed to the principle that even they, if they were inhabited, but by people not to the level of civilization that they understood, which is kind and of an excuse. Yeah, yeah. Here. Well, here we stood until 1992, when the High Court mm, rejected Tiranallius. And so Australia doesn't really have a clear claim of a sovereignty over its own land because there's no conquest, no treaty of surrender occurred, there's no cession, no treaty ever occurred, and no occupation because Terranalis has been rejected. So the three potential ways in which sovereignty uh, could be claimed have not been applied in Australia. So, but that's another issue. Yes. But the, the rejection of the doctrine of discovery by the Pope is of great symbolic significance because while it doesn't, it doesn't change the... the um, the current operation of international law, because now the separation of law and state means that as a result of the Treaty of Westphalia, the sovereignty of the states is 
within themselves and as recognized by each other. Mm -hmm. So the doctrine of discovery still will be used by them, which is why the US planted, the US explorers planted the flag on the moon when they landed mm -hmm. on the moon. That's the first act of discovery. However, the fact that the Pope rejected the doctrine of discovery as a Christian doctrine means that the, the symbolic basis, the origin of that doctrine is no longer valid and no longer acceptable. That ought to give us pause and to rethink, particularly about the way in which the system of domination that emerged from that European colonization of, of the world has been perpetuated for the last five centuries, both on non-European um, communities, Aboriginal communities in Australia, native communities around the world, and on the non-human world. So the, the fact that the Pope, and it, it is not surprising that the same Pope who passed the, who wrote the encyclical Laudato Si, yeah. is the, the Pope who rejected the doctrine of this God. Yeah, yeah. What, a, what a spectrum. And it, that's the first thing I thought, because I thought it didn't end at the encyclical. No. It's still in motion. And, and they are the underpinning principles of the very culture we live out of. Yeah. But largely blindly, and yeah. to think that that's the tectonic shifts that yeah. are happening around the place. Yeah. yeah. Cheers, Alessandro. What a brilliant conversation it's been to be able to share this with you on your deck at your home. And as always, it's it's an incredible honour for me to chat to speak with you. So thank you, thank you for all that you're doing because you're bringing together all these voices, these ideas, these threads, these streams into a veritable river. So mm. let's go all together into the ocean. Beautiful metaphor. As long as we end up in the ocean, you know, I'm happy. <laughs> okay, to take us out, what music are you reveling in in these days? So right now, there's um, a Middle Eastern band, a Canadian band that plays Middle Eastern music, comprised of primarily Middle Eastern musician called Constantinople. And, and it has this Eastern vibes fantastic chora music and that's it. that's what i'm sort of listening at the moment. i can always rely on you for something to go and stream <laughs> awesome thanks alex thank you that was associate professor in law at the university of the sunshine coast and co-founder of resonant earth dr alessandro palazzon for more on alessandro resonant earth and the campaign for our universities see the links in the show notes it's been a big week in byron with alessandro the Farmer's Footprint Incubator launch, Sustainable Table pre-launch back in Brisbane at Food Connect on Wednesday, a nice surf or two, and a few other things I'll share more on soon. I'm now heading south, and we'll share more from there soon too. And remember to join us if you can for the major report launched by Sustainable Table on regenerating investment in food and farming. Online on the morning of Thursday the 20th of April. Australian Eastern Time. Within it, I'll be hosting a conversation with a trailblazing panel of guests from around Australia and the world. The link for that is also in the show notes. And for subscribers, I'll continue to send you behind-the-scenes snippets of what's unfolding here, and if you've been thinking about becoming a subscriber, I'd love you to join us. It's with thanks as always to this community of generous supporters that this episode was made possible. Just head to the website via the show notes, regeneration.com forward slash support. And as always, if you think of someone who might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening. <laughs>